Hello, all you Lasso fans, and welcome to a special episode of Peanut Butter and Biscuits. I'm your host today, Craig, but I'm not joined by Jeremy today, and I'm going to tell you why. So we have all heard about the recent news of the WGA and the SAG-AFTRA strikes that are going on right now. And of course, we know that many of our uh, writers, actors from Ted Lasso have been on the picket lines. We've seen for months now people like Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. Uh, we've also seen Brett Goldstein. And then, of course, we've even seen people like AJ Catiline, who's in our groups and promoting his um, his thoughts on the strikes and the contract negotiations that are ongoing as well. And so we thought that it would be really important to share a discussion that my co-host from Beyond the Mouse, Vanessa, and I were able to have with a writer. His name is Mark Bernardin. You may know him from the podcasting space as well. He is someone that has a uh, a very popular podcast called Fat Man Beyond with Kevin Smith. And that's sort of how I got to know him. But he is such an accomplished writer in so many different mediums, including uh, as a journalist with the LA Times and Entertainment Weekly, but also as a comic book author. He was just Eisner nominated this past year. And then also, of course, he's written for television as well. And so all those things combined, he's a great guest to get on and to be able to sort of talk about some of the issues and sort of understand these issues from a writer's perspective and what's going on. Mark has also been on the picket lines for the last uh, for the last 70 some days. And so it's great to be able to get him and his perspective onto this show. And so that's why this is going to be sort of a different type of episode for you. I know we're not going to have too much Ted Lasso talk here, but I hope that you find it insightful and hopefully an enjoyable conversation. I really loved getting a chance to talk to Mark about these really important issues. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn it right back over to myself with the conversation with Mark Bernardin. So it's a great privilege to be able to bring onto our show today, Mark Bernardin, who has been sort of out there from the WGA side of things, really sort of fighting the good fight when it comes to this strike that has been going on for weeks and months uh, from the WGA side. And of course, we just had the uh, SAG-AFTRA uh, union also go on strike as well. And so we're going to talk to him a bit about that today. Uh, hi, Mark. First of all, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thank you. It's well, well, well met. Mr. Yes, that's great. Now, I want to tell our listeners a bit about your uh, history and your career as well, and sort of establish a bit about that and talk about your past. And then I really want to get a lot of your perspective as someone that's been on the picket lines quite a bit uh, over the last few months and to uh, sort of understand what are some of the issues that are going on in this particular strike. But I'll tell you that I've come to know you so much from podcasting in particular. You're a co-host on Fat Man Beyond with Kevin Smith, and mm -hmm. uh, you've also done many episodes of Black Man Beyond without Kevin as well, where you talk about writing and your passion for writing. And uh, I'm also such a comic book reader as well. I just picked up the latest issue of the new Vader series, which you're writing on for Marvel as well. So I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm hoping to do that this week. And of course, you're Eisner nominated for Adora in the Distance as well, which is uh, sort of autobiographical about your family too. So can you just sort of talk to our listeners about your passion uh, or your career in writing and how uh, that's evolved over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a nerd died in the wool. Um, my very first memory that I have access to as a grown person is sitting in a theater watching star Wars in probably 1977. Cause I'm also an old man. 
Um, so this would have been first run. I would have been like five or six, maybe. Um, and that sort of began this journey for me into, into genre spaces. And that brought me into science fiction on TV and in the movies and then comic books and novels and and just sort of immersing myself in, in, in that world, the escapism of that world, the, the big things, the giant ideas of that world. Um, I, I wanted to be a filmmaker um, when I went to college, did not become a filmmaker until much, much later. I was a journalist first. I, I worked for a magazine called Starlog, ran out of college, then Entertainment Weekly for about 13 years, then Hollywood Reporter and, jeez, uh, LA Times and, and all while trying to make stuff up. Like my, my dream was, could I make stuff up for money? Well, they pay me to invent things. And I started writing comic books while I was a journalist, um, hoping that that would just be the new thing. And then I discovered television writing. Um, and that was that was the the bow I wanted to jump to when I when I left being a journalist. And uh, and was lucky enough to hit journalism, I'm sorry, to hit television, um, exactly when they were both looking for nerds and for uh, people of color. And so I got to show up at that intersection of Fun Street and Black Street and uh, and and suddenly like, oh, all right, I'll, I guess I'll do Castle Rock and I guess I'll do Treadstone and I guess I'll do Carnival Row and I guess I'll do Star Trek Picard. And I guess all of these things that I've loved since I was a kid, I've finally gotten to explain to my parents that now they pay me to love them. Well, I have a question about your journalism because I have to say your writing's fantastic and and looking at that I'm like, wow, this guy like he 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 writes the entertainment stuff. How do you get to do that? It's like where did you get the training for that? And also, I ask every every journalist I meet, what's your favorite journalism themed film? And there is a right answer, I think. Um Maybe. I uh, second part first, my favorite journalism themed film is Almost Famous. Okay. Oh, that's a great. That's a good one. I thought you were going to say something else, but that's okay. That's a good one. Well, I mean, remember, I was barely a journalist. Like, I, I wasn't Woodward and/or Bernstein. Like, I was not cracking open scandals in the church. Like, there, there are great movies about journalism, but then there's the one that's actually about the kind of journalism that I did. Fair <laughs> enough. Running around <laughs> with knuckleheads trying to find a story in it. Um, um, you know, I think that 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 being a journalist, specifically I was an editor um, most of the time, was all about helping people tell their stories. Um, I, I, I understood 100% what my position was in any given story, which was not to be the writer of it, but was to help find the thing that the writer was wanting to say and help clarify that and strengthen that. I worked with film critics a lot. And so helping them to figure out the most clear way to, to put forth an opinion was uh, was the joy of my job. And so then coming to television, that job is also helping somebody else tell their story as best as they can. And being a good inning of relief pitching, of like helping to, to execute. And not that those skills are one-to-one, -one, but that was always the fun that I had in being a journalist, was helping people tell their stories. And then luckily now getting to tell mine. That's great. I, I've mentioned that, you know, we are going to kind of cross promote this and cross publish this across a lot of our network shows. And so very degrees of listeners as far as who might know that kind of nerd space and comic space. I mentioned sort of in passing that you were Eisner nominated. Uh, people should know that that's essentially the Oscars for uh, the comic space. I mean, this is uh, a very 
prestigious award that you were nominated for, for Adora in the Distance. And I know that there's been some questions on what uh, people and creators and content uh, creators like us even are sort of allowed to publish or should be publishing if you are supportive of this strike. And so one of the things I do know that we can promote are things like your comics and like the work that you've done in that space. And so I wonder if you can just uh, sort of tell us about the story of Adora in the Distance and some of the other properties that you've worked on for DC and Marvel. Um, and then again, I really do want to get into the strike talk, but I, I want my listeners to know and our listeners to know that there is a lot of great written word content out there, especially in comics right now that people could go dive into. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and comics is one of the few things that I can actually work on while I'm on strike. I'm not I'm not forbidden from doing so. Um, but Adore in the Distance is a graphic novel, sort of a, 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 an all ages, but mostly a young reader's YA book about a, a sort of 10 year old girl who lives in a kind of fantasy land that feels like a, a city on the coast of Spain. Um, who discovers that there's a mystical force that's coming to destroy everything that she knows called the distance. And so it becomes a quest story. It becomes like knights and a and a, and a princess and her, her lady in waiting, and they're going off into the into the unknown to try and 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 save everybody that she knows and loves. But it is also um sort of a, a parable, an analogy to uh to autism, to being a child on the spectrum, to sort of living in your own fantasy world and not understanding or not connecting to the world outside of it. And I'm fully aware, uh, as, as I think many parents and people who have children and adults with autism in their lives, that every person with autism is a very specific person with autism. No two people have the same kind of autism. So my experience with it is different from others' experience with it, but the book is hopefully able to kind of just get the emotional truth of what it is like to, uh, to understand a person um, with autism. Um, so that book came out last year, nominated for the Eisner, which I'm very, very proud of. Um, and my artist on it was phenomenal, Ariella Cristantina from uh, from Indonesia. She remains this this astonishing clarion artist in, in the in the business. And I'm lucky every time she answers an email, let alone we get to do a book together. Um, I have a book coming out in August called The Messenger, The Legend of Muhammad Ali through first, second uh, ink, which is a sort of, epic poem retelling of uh, of the story of Muhammad Ali. Uh, it's broken into 10 rounds. Each round is a specific moment in his life. Um, and so some of them are like, here's an interview with Howard Cosell. Here's winning the championship from Sunday Liston. Here's, you know, uh, the, the, the battle with the Supreme Court. Here's shooting an Esquire uh, cover shot. Like, but each of them sort of illuminating uh, a pillar in what would become the totality of Muhammad Ali's life. That's so great. Uh, I can't wait to dive into that as well. But let's um, I, I want to talk about your short film and everything that you've got coming on, too. But I kind of want to dive into Strike Talk first and then uh, maybe end with uh, Splinter and, and talking about that. But Vanessa, I, I know that we've come up with a, a few questions that we want to ask about this to just sort of help inform our audiences about what is going on with these strikes. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. <laughs> so <laughs> trying to get some uh, from a, a primary source here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and 
I think to keep in mind that we, uh, our listeners are mostly in the Midwest, although they yeah. do range to different coasts. So sometimes when we are far removed from Hollywood and LA, we don't quite understand the nuances of what's happening. So when we hear strike, we think, oh, this is a money disagreement. But could you kind of tell us about the different layers that are uh, being negotiated in this strike, the sticking points that the WGA has with the producers? Can you kind of um, briefly, as as best you can, because I know there's several points, uh, lay that out for us? Of course, of course. You know, I I think that, that, that yes, Every strike is ultimately about money. Um, but what does that money represent to people? You know, I think that there is the feeling that that writers and actors are immensely wealthy and incredibly well off and are already rich and just want more. But the truth is, um, most writers who work for the Writers Guild are not rich at all. They're working class people. Um, most actors make $40,000 a year. If that, that's the average. Eighty um, percent of the the, the actors on the, who are now currently on the picket line as well make under twenty five thousand dollars a year as actors. They make the rest of their money doing all the things people think actors do by you know waiting tables and being baristas and driving Ubers and delivering food. Um, but the writers, what we're fighting for is ultimately um, increases in our in our minimum pay, um, protections from artificial intelligence. Um, and and sort of minimums on the number of people who get to make any given TV show. Um, those are sort of the three pillars of it. Um, artificial intelligence, we're desperately afraid of because, A, we've been writing about artificial intelligence for some hundred years in fiction, and it never ends well. Um, but the truth of it is, is that AI um, is a destabilizing force in almost every industry it comes into contact with. Um, and it is coming for everybody. It's not just coming for writers who really want to be able to create things and not have an algorithm create things for you and just hire one person to come in and make it sound human. Um, it is not just coming for actors who would like to not be replaced by CG figures on screen, would not like to just be summoned at the call of a button and put to work without their consent or their compensation. It's coming and has come for grocery checkout clerks. It has come for toll booth operators. It has come for phone call bank you know, staffers. It is coming for news actors. Um, there is always going to be in the advantage of, of automation. This is just the next version of it. Um, some of it is frightening and still on the horizon. Some of it is happening right now today. So what we're fighting for is control over. It's a tool, but who gets to use that tool? and who gets to, to to sort of direct the ways in which those tools are used. Um, you know, the, the, the thing of it is, is that what we're asking for, and it's hard to put money figures on it because it is all, it, that skews the conversation in, in reality, but it's 2%. The Writers Guild is looking for 2% of the revenues of these massive companies that make billions of dollars a year. You know, and and what that two percent would get us is the ability to pay our rents, the ability to not have to drive an Uber in between shows, um, and and it helps us to adjust to a changing landscape. When when I started watching television as a young youth person, you know, there would be a TV season that would go from September to May, forty weeks some out of TV. You get you know twenty twenty two episodes of Magnum PI. You know, you'd start working on that show in August. 
you'd start producing and shooting that show in September. That show would air and staff writers would be working that entire time. You would be employed for most of that year. And that's how you made your living. Um, now you're no longer working 40 weeks on a show. You're working 10 weeks on a show. And so then what happens to the other 42 weeks of the year? Can you get another show to work on? More often than not, you can't because everybody's trying to compete for those same jobs. So it used to be a 40-week job has now become a 10-week job. And that 10-week job is not paying you so much more than it lasts that year. And so we're trying to figure out ways to pivot from what TV used to be to what TV is, but still protecting people while we pivot. And so making sure that people can feed themselves, making sure that writing is a career that people can, can achieve and sustain. Because when we start losing the ability to become a professional writer, we start losing the ability to invent, to create, to sustain. You know, I think that everybody who survived the pandemic, both emotionally and physically, um, looked to content for solace, you know, looked to television and film and whatever you could binge on Netflix, you know, whatever you could find a way to pipe into your house. Um, it's, it's an emotional necessity for a culture. And if nobody's making that stuff, then what does that say about that culture? You know, and so I think that's what we're fighting for, the ability to get to do this stuff. Well, one thing that has been so surprising is, uh, you know, I think sometimes uh, in the Midwest, we see ourselves as workers. We, But when you're talking about cutting hours and getting fewer residuals and not having health insurance, that is something that's so relatable. I guess I'm just confused as to why did it take the strike for us to learn about this? How come we didn't know, you know, this must have been going on for a while that that variable cost of labor was being sliced. Why didn't we know before that this was happening in Hollywood? Um, I think some of it is because we're not inherently complainers. You know, I think that we do recognize how wonderful it is to get to do this job. You know, I, I I try when I when I talk to younger writers, when I talk to to aspirants to this to this business, I always have to warn them, like guys, it's easier to become a professional athlete than it is to become a professional writer. Like the numbers bear that out, and so it's hard to do. And everybody who gets to do it is incredibly grateful that they get to do it. But <laughs> you know, you still have to reward labor at their equal at their commensurate value. You know, you need to let us participate in the success of the things that we create, you know, and I, and I think that that when you start talking to people, I talk to my parents about it all the time, who my parents are not in the business. My parents are immigrants. My parents don't quite understand. It's like, well, don't you want if you if you're an accountant and you open an accounting firm to share in the profit that you make that firm based on the number of clients you bring in? Like, don't you want some kind of participation based on your effort and your labor? It's like, well, yeah, of course we do. It's like, right. You know, don't you don't you want to be rewarded for what you do um, at a level that makes sense comparative to how much money you're making for somebody? Like if they're making billions of dollars and you're making thousands of dollars and you're doing all the work, something doesn't feel right there. You know, and so that's we we've been kind of kicking this ball down the field a little bit, you know, our, our contracts with the studios and the producers expire every three years. So every three years is a negotiation for it. And when the negotiations go well, we don't tell anybody about it. Like, all right, we made some progress. We got to fund our health insurance. We got to, to up our minimums. Everybody's got a little bit more. We're not entirely always happy, but it's happy enough. 
the last time it came, it expired was in 2020, and it was the middle of the pandemic. And we just punted. And we're like, listen, we are not going to get into this. Let's just deal with healing ourselves emotionally and physically, and we'll come back to it in 2023. And in 2023, we did. And, and we then not only found ourselves looking for the things we always look for, which is more contributions to our health and pension, you know, more minimum salaries sort of lifted to, to sort of dial in with inflation. But now AI is coming, you know, now, now streaming is here and the way television used to work, which is ads paid for everything. And now there are no ads. So what pays for everything? And it turns out we pay for everything because they stopped paying us the money they used to pay us. That's not right. We're still doing the same work and getting less money for it. So, you know, and I, and I think getting to talk to people and getting to, to help them understand what this fight is about. It's not about the rich trying to get richer. It's about the middle class trying to remain middle class. Um, you know, we I currently live in Los Angeles, which is one of the most expensive places in the world to live. Mm-hmm. It ain't cheap to buy a house out here. Not that it's cheap anywhere to buy a house, given the current economy, but it's this is a business town. <laughs> so the business sets the rate. And so we're just trying to make it so that you can afford a house and feed a family and have a car and all of the things that your average person in America wants to have. Really interesting when we talk about the streaming, and I, I can't wait to, to dive into AI a little bit too, but but streaming, it, it seems like it was this bet, you know, it's like this, this bet by these major companies, we're going to come up with our own streamer, we're going to put on some premium content on it, we're going to get all these shows. And then now their models are starting to look like okay, we can't just completely depend on growth and growth and growth. Now we're going to have to go back to ad-supported models or putting things, uh, bundling things together, almost like we're bringing back together cable. And it's almost like the, the, the people that made that decision are now attempting to take that out on the people that actually created the content that they were able to then go out there and sell. Um, you know, I, I I'll tell you that this is also going on our Disney feed, and I, for the most part, really appreciate a lot of the things that Bob Iger has done for that company with the acquisitions he made, and for things at the parks, he's made some uh, comments this week that are not great. Um, and you know, it's just uh, I, I wonder how all of that uh that kind of streaming bubble that we're almost in it seems like at the moment we're living in this renaissance of just amazing television where you can it's hard to keep up on all the great and well-written shows because there's just so many of them but at the same time the it, it seems like they've made these bets on just growth 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 on these streamers and that's not necessarily coming to fruition or they're kind of running out of that growth and so now they're trying to figure out ways to uh, undercut those people that actually provided us the content, really. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? Yeah, I mean, television used to be a beautiful machine. You know, it, it was a studio pays for a TV show. They then sell it to a network. They get money that way. The network then sells ads against it. The network gets money that way. When you added cable to the mix, cable was charging a subscription and you also got to sell ads. And then you got bundling fees and carriage license fees and all these things. For 20 years, everybody got rich. <laughs> everybody was happy. And then Netflix comes along and, you know, found a hole in the market and, and exploited it, which was people want access to things. They want access to lots of things. Great. Okay. Give them access. 
it became another television network. So the studio still got to sell their content to Netflix. They got to make their money that way. Netflix got to make money on subscriptions. And everybody still kind of found a way to get paid. And then the pandemic hit. And everybody realized that nobody was leaving the house for a year. Maybe we should all have streamers. <laughs> we should all do this. Maybe, maybe we should all chase this dragon that is Netflix. And, and it turns out that you can't get rich on $14.99 a month, the way that you could get rich on we sold these ads to Ford you know, for all of this, the run of this TV show. You know, and so now we're in a world where streaming isn't scalable, really. Like in success, a show only like it doesn't they don't charge you more to watch a successful show than a non-successful show. And so their income is somewhat capped on it. And so it just the business has begun to shift and change. And now we're reinventing television the slowest, most painful way possible by having streamers that are now having ads on them. Hulu used to do this a while back. There was a tier that you paid for Hulu, Hulu with ads. And then you got to watch whatever ads were, you know, Hulu had bought for that month. Amazon Freebie is another one and Tubi. And like they're beginning to resurrect what used to be cable TV because ads are how you make money, it turns out. Um, and so we're trying to figure out a way to harmonize all this stuff back together, to put this genie back in the bottle, which historically doesn't work entirely well, but it's worth trying because everybody did okay in the old model. And if we can like awkwardly ham-fistedly reinvent it, um, that feels like where we're going. But you, you're right. It was, it was chasing the dream of Netflix's giant stock valuation. And during the pandemic, that was the only arbiter and metric for success. You know, Disney didn't have theme parks people could go to. They didn't have cruises people could take. You know, nobody was going to movies anymore, so box office didn't work. Like, how do you measure the health of a company? It turned out that the growth of a streamer was Wall Street's handiest metric for doing so. And everybody needed a streamer. So here's Paramount Plus and Peacock and, and you know, Apple TV. And who knows how much anybody is watching this stuff because they never tell us. They don't release numbers the way you have Nielsen ratings for, for regular network TV, the way you have box office reports for movies. You have a sense of if people are watching a thing, if people are responding to a thing, and how much you can negotiate your value based on demand for a thing. You know, they can tell me that Wednesday is doing incredibly well, but if I'm working on Wednesday, I don't really know how well that is. So when I want to renegotiate my contract, what are my defense for that? What's my ammunition for that? You know, how do I get what, quote unquote, is due me um, for the work that I've done? And all of that stuff has become somewhat opaque and all of it's become somewhat proprietary. And that's not helpful to both advertisers who eventually will want to, to buy ads on whatever ad version of Netflix is coming. It's not helpful to, to actors and writers and producers and directors who want to negotiate their fee for the next job that they do. It's only helpful for the companies themselves. And that doesn't feel like an, uh, a fair playing field. This is all really fascinating. I'll tell you, I've been uh, in an MBA program studying, and, and that doesn't mean I'm an expert in anything. It just means <laughs> that it's on my mind. But another one of the complaints that I've seen people, uh, writers, actors talk about on TikTok are the salaries for CEOs. Uh, I appreciate that you're sharing the, the business model of how advertising plays into that. But but what about their salaries? Do you have any comments on um, what they're making compared to everyone else? Um, 
I, I will say candidly, I don't know what a CEO does every day. Um, I don't I, I don't understand what that job is. Other than I suppose you're looking at decisions made by people below you and saying that was a good one or that was a bad one. And maybe we should do this and we shouldn't do that. And okay, like, and what's the fair market value for that? Apparently it's hundreds of millions of dollars um, to make decisions about what other people make. Now, if anything was ever the American way, that's the American way, <laughs> which is, hey, did you build a railroad? Not really. I pointed and told people where they should build a railroad and they built the railroad and I get all the money because that's how America works. <laughs> you know, and so... Uh, do I think that anybody should be making $100 million a year who doesn't write, direct, produce, or act in a television show on television shows? Not especially. Um, I, I'm assuming they have value because they keep getting paid this much money. Um, I just don't know exactly what that value is. Um, I know the work that writers do. I know the work that actors do. I know the work that producers and directors do. Um, but, you know, hey, again, America will do what America does, and and this is the path. This is capitalism at its finest, which is, can I make a buck off of somebody else's labor? Yeah, yeah, they can. Um, I do find it odd when people say things like their their requests and their acts and their and their wants and needs are unreasonable. Um, the amount of money that they're looking for is not feasible for us. It's like, well, no, it is. You just have decided you don't want to. Um, because you have the money, you've made $40 billion this year as a company. You personally have made $200 million this year. Um, we're asking for less than that. <laughs> All of us, 20,000 writers, you're asking for less than that. I'm wondering if we can also talk a little bit about AI, because one of the things that has been discussed here locally is that negotiation of the this what did they call it like a groundbreaking ai proposal where we will scan you for and we'll pay you for a day and then we use your likeness indefinitely that weirded out a lot of us here but how do you feel about it i mean the the thing that i'm the scarest about most scared about is that ai as we're calling it is not really ai it's a plagiarism machine. Mm -hmm. It's you are feeding it data. And all of that data is owned by, was created by human people. You know, as, as far as writers go, like they're just dumping things from the internet from into it. You know, I had a friend who, uh, who was like, I'd like to see dear chat GPT. I want to see a story about um, race and class and star Wars. Um, written by me, uh, give it to me. And so, and it spit it out. It's like, now listen, it's not good me, but it's recognizably me, you know, and it's based on other articles and other pieces that I have written in the past. And it scraped the internet and found things that sound like me or were me, regurgitated it and spit it back out again. If you're an actor, that is the scariest part, which is like, yeah, I just, I'm a background player. I'm trying to become an actor. At some point, I want to be Brad Pitt. Um, but in order for me to get this job as an extra on this episode of, of whatever, Mike and Molly, um, I've got to agree to take $100 and they can scan my face and my body. And then any other time they want me to be that background extra, they have me in the, in the database. And I don't get another $100 when they use me. And I don't know what they're using me for. You know, they could 
as these companies will want to do, sell their data. They can just say, oh, hey, remember we got Phil and we scanned him in there? That's great. We're making this slasher horror picture. Um, and now we're going to put Phil in the background as a person being murdered. It's like, hey, I don't want that. I don't agree to that. You know, I it's, it's against everything that I stand for. And that's not even considering the line between regular content and pornography, which could also be sold to. And suddenly you find yourself in the kind of movie you 100% don't want to be in. It might be against your moral, religious, and ethical standards. You don't have any control anymore. You know, it used to be you could say no. They're taking away consent <laughs> to a certain degree and not even exchanging it for profit. And so that's the thing that, that actors are becoming afraid of. That's what they're most concerned about is they pay me a certain a pittance of money and then they have me and they can use me. Now, Brad Pitt is not concerned about this. Tom Cruise is not concerned about this because they will always be Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. But it's whatever the fourth generation behind them are concerned about. That's where it is. You know, James Earl Jones can sell his Darth Vader content and the rights to summon Darth Vader out of the computer because he's James Earl Jones. And he has done. Like, he is no longer performing as Darth Vader because Lucasfilm now has enough data to be able to type in the dialogue and have James Earl Jones say it. And that's great. But is that going to be the same thing for every voiceover actor, for every person? No. They're just going to do it because they already own it unless they have to do it. And the only reason they would have to do it is because a union tells them you can't do this. Like you have to pay people for their work. You have to respect their autonomy. You have to, you have to recognize their humanity and the contributions that humans bring to art. Um, because AI has never had its heart broken. AI has never flunked a class. AI has never disappointed its parents. <laughs> AI never had that bad thing happen in Bandcamp once. All of the trauma that we build that fuel art, AI's never had. And that is the core of the human experience, is trauma and recovery. And that's why art works. And if you seed that to a machine, you'll then get art that feels like, I don't know, 3D printed salad. Like, nobody wants that. Also, mm -hmm. it's salad. Nobody wants it anyway. <laughs> well, you know, like it, it's interesting that you mentioned that AI is coming for everybody too, because um, my day job, also uh, the station that uh, Vanessa's at uh, as well, situated on a university campus, and people are scared as hell about the idea of chat GPT and what's going to happen with term papers and what's going to happen with writing assignments and everything else. It's coming at it from that side. I follow a lot of politics and they're worried about deep fakes in campaigns and uh, a candidate it, you know, voicing something ridiculous that the candidate would never say, but it looks so real that it's hard for the information to really cut through that that's a fake, uh, a deep fake. And so it really is coming at from every walk of life. Today, uh, we're talking on a Tuesday and The Daily, uh, the podcast by The New York Times today was all about um, that Sarah Silverman's lawsuit against OpenAI and Meta uh, about her work being scraped. And then also they're going at it for more of like a copyright law, kind of a, an interesting perspective on that too. And so this is something that is, this discussion is here. And I almost feel like that's why 
even if you didn't necessarily, um, and I don't want to put it out there in these harsher terms, but let's say you're someone out there that just didn't care about the writers and the actors and everything else. It's so much more than that at, at this point. This discussion is going to impact how other unions or how other workforces are able to start to negotiate what is going to be this future with AI. Yeah, I mean, it it, it requires control. You know, and at some point it'll have to be legislative control, right? Because to your point, you know, if you can deep fake a politician saying the most antithetical things to that politician, and in a world where truth is already under siege, having to arm a populace with the ability to tell truth from fiction is already almost impossible. And once it looks like truth, and once it sounds like truth and feels like truth, it'll be it'll be a, a war that's already lost. And so, like, yeah, Congress is going to have to get into this because for all of the reasons, you know, higher education will have to get into this because how can you tell that that kid who was not a great writer to begin with didn't write this paper? You know, how how can you suddenly become the arbiter for what is real and what isn't real? And it's it's if an informed populace is the, is the heartbeat of a democracy, then then we're already on the slippery slope that way. And this is just the 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 luge that sends us into spinning into the abyss. And so this is just the first fight. You know, this is this is the first battle in in a in, a, in an ongoing campaign against just kind of putting this genie to to over torture a metaphor, and if not back in the box, at least on a leash, so that you know we can control it. So that like yeah, no, it's a tool and it's a great tool. But it should be in the hands of the creative people and not in the hands of the people who already take advantage of the creative people, mm. who would already happily find a way to squeeze another percentage out of the process. Um, and and yeah, it is coming for everybody. Um, slower in some regards than others, but it's coming. Now, you've been what? on. Uh, oh, go ahead, Vanessa. Did you have another question about AI or? Yeah, well, I was just going to ask because there's been talk about federal mediators coming in. Mm -hmm. And do you have any sense of if that will be beneficial at all in the negotiation process? Does the U.S. government have a stake in uh, this negotiation deal? You know, what what have you heard um, about that, um, about federal mediators coming in? Um, the federal mediators were called in um, to by the by the students by the AMPTP the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers um to help um wrangle the actors the screen actors guild when they were going to go out on strike um the reason why the mediators were called in to deal with SAG and not the WGA is because when SAG strikes everything stops everything stops like you can't shoot a movie or a TV show without actors they believe they can do it without writers um, that they've banked enough scripts, that they have enough, you know, content in the in the in the warehouse that they can just start pulling scripts off a pile and like we like this movie. Once let's go shoot it. The directors are cool, the actors are cool. We can we've got another couple of months before the actually the cupboards are bare in terms of scripts. But actors, they walk and everything stops, and it becomes a financial consideration, you know, not just to Hollywood itself, not just to these companies but to the entirety of California, you know, like I don't know how many people work. I don't know how much money gets injected into the economy based on production and, and distribution of movies and TV shows, but it's a lot. 
you know, we're an industry town and, you know, content is oil here. And if you're not pumping oil, then everybody doesn't get to work. And so then it becomes like a gross national product issue <laughs> that you have to bring in the federal government. Um, I don't know what power they have, what leverage they have, um, because it is still very much a conversation between two parties um, who are miles apart from each other um, and not having meaningful conversations about um, resolving their issues. Um, some of it is over AI, some of it is over residuals, some of it is over background players. Some of it is every union has their own thing, but the overlaps are transparency of data and control over AI. Um, and the transparency of data field, you know, funnels into residuals and all of that stuff. But it'd be great if the federal mediators could make some headway. Um, but I think ultimately it's going to have to be the studios. It's going to have to be the producers who say, okay, all right, okay, we know. <laughs> we know we broke TV. Um, and so maybe we can together figure out a way to fix it so that this can be a sustainable job for everybody. So you can keep going, making your $100 billion a year salaries. We can continue to put food on our tables and we can all make stuff that America and the world loves. Now, I want to make sure we're respectful of your time, too, but I also want to get the perspective from your uh, time on the picket line as well. You know, as uh, Lasso fans as well, uh, with Peanut Butter and Biscuits, my, my Ted Lasso show that this will an audience will be listening to from, um, you know, we see that our actor writers have been out there for a long time. We've seen Jason Sudeikis out there. We've seen Brett Goldstein out there. We've seen Brendan Hunt out there. Um, we, we've seen the editor of the show, AJ Catiline, who's uh, involved in our show quite a bit, and, and he's been out there really promoting these things. But I wonder, um, haven't had a chance to talk to them directly about their experiences on the lines. And so I'm wondering if you can share some of that perspective with us too, from someone that's been out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think we're in day 76, 77. I'm not sure it's, it's, we started on May 2. <laughs> Here we are cresting into, into August. Um, it's been alternately like wonderful and spiritual and, um, inspiring because writing is a solitary experience by and large you know even if you're in a writer's room you're only dealing with another five or six or seven other writers and then when you're on script when you're writing your own episode you go off to your office you go off home and you're working by yourself and so to be on a picket line with hundreds of other writers to be at events with thousands of other writers to realize that this is not a, a boat you need to row by yourself that we are all kind of in this together. And we all, the, the esprit de corps, the feeling of camaraderie um, was high um, and remains high, even as it's 110 degrees in Southern California. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so walking a picket line um, for two or three hours in this heat is a bit much. Um, but thankfully, as the memes will all show you, the Avengers have shown up with their gorgeous hair and their wonderful lighting and their spirit and their abs. And <laughs> the actors are now on the picket line with us. And that, that adds this whole nother sense of the second wave of this, okay, we are not alone anymore. There, there is more that unites us than divides us. And we're all kind of in this fight together and just finding ways to energize people. The actors is a huge way. They would have these themed pickets where, do you like Quantum Leap? Come to the Quantum Leap picket at the NBC Universal lot. And you can meet writers and actors and you can walk your picket line together and you can take some selfies. And it was great. And it remains great. And, and that level of, of energizing the base, of keeping people enthused and keeping people invested um, has made it um, 
we will be stronger on the other side of this strike than we were going into it. And we were already pretty strong, you know, and I think that it will also engender creative relationships that might not have been there before, because now you're getting to know a person. You know, if I walk for three hours on a picket line, like we've talked quite a bit, you and me, stranger, you know, and you do the same kind of thing that I do. You also like horror, you like science fiction, and I didn't know your name, but now I do. And so maybe if I'm staffing a show, remember that lady that I was on the picket line with who was super smart and super sharp. And those things are all great because we are at our hearts sort of creative wastrels <laughs> have been like kind of off into the cosmos without a real sense of community aside from the guild we belong to. And now this has actually hammered us together. We're sort of forging these relationships and heat and struggle and sweat and pretzels and uh, food trucks and uh, lots of bottles of water. Well, Mark, we really appreciate you giving us insight into this. Uh, like I said, I, I think a lot of our listeners had questions. There's just a lot we weren't aware about. And for those who are watching this unfold and are feeling activated, what is the best way for those people to support uh, unions uh, in Hollywood? To do, do they not go to the movies? Do they stop streaming? What's the best way that they can help support uh, the Writers Guild if they want to do that? Um, the Writers Guild is not asking for a boycott yet. Um, it may happen at some point, but it, it isn't yet, because I do think that that continuing to remind people the value of writers, um, a great way to do that is to let them watch the things that we do, to, to see the work that we make, and to remember that a person wrote this at some point, or a group of people wrote this at some point. Um, I think if if somebody is feeling financially motivated, the WGA um, West website will have a list of sort of support funds that can be donated to um, to help alleviate some of the issues that some of our, especially the lower um, paid writers, the lower level writers are experiencing. Because again, it's not a lot of money over the course of time, and so hearing stories from people like, "Hey, remember that show, The Bear, that you guys love so much?" I am living paycheck to paycheck and I'm not getting a paycheck anymore, mm. you know? And so that's, that is real. That's the kind of thing that we're fighting for. And so those kinds of funds that can help, like we're going to put groceries in people's houses. We're going to help make sure that they can pay their electric bills, which in Southern California, when it's 110 degrees out, will be astronomical. Um, there's a, there's a, an outfit called WGA strike shirts. Um, I think it's WGA strike shirts.com that, uh, that they just create, um, sort of themed t-shirts and they sell them and all the proceeds go to that entertainment community fund that can help um, help alleviate some financial distress for people. Um, and it's spread the word, you know, like if you're on Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram or whatever, and you see somebody posting about the strike under the hashtag WGA strong, you know, amplify, um, you know, reach out, even ask questions. I think that that most writers are more than happy to explain to people like, yeah, this is why we're fighting. This is what we're looking for. Um, if there's something you don't understand, somebody can clarify it for you. Um, but I think it's just, you know, being mindful, letting support um, spiritually and, and, uh, and, and, and morale wise and economically, if you can contribute, if we call a boycott, then it's time to start saving those 999s a month that you've been funneling into streamers. Um, don't not go to movies though. Like, because I think that's a different business where there are people who own movie theaters who are struggling just like everybody else is struggling because the economy is not great. People aren't still going back to the movies at the level pre-pandemic. And those guys never made a ton of money on movies 
themselves either. They make money on popcorn and soda. And so they need you to go buy that popcorn and soda. So keep going to movies. But streamers is the thing you can examine if you're feeling so motivated. You know, because we're talking about this, I'm going to ask you something hyper-focused uh, and you're you're well within your means to say, you know what, that's a little bit in the weeds for me. But um, we were discussing this as content creators and what our role should be uh, as people that, um, you know, myself personally, very committed to um, supporting this strike. And we always get these media invites for junkets. It's interesting to me because now uh, on one hand, they're not going to have the actors anymore at these junkets. And so you uh, should we, you know, support, be supportive of the actors who are not going to promote. But on the other hand, they're now offering craft people that you hardly ever get to hear from at these types of junkets, uh, things like cinematographers or costume designers or, or composers and, and things. And so wondering from even a, a content perspective, um, what is the, the potential right call there? from you know do you continue to to uh go to these types of events um you know it, it is a it is a quandary it's a pickle that i think we all find ourselves in even myself as a podcaster it's should i be covering content from struck companies from people that we are currently in in active conflict with you know do i say i went and saw mission impossible dead reckoning and i felt this way about it or that way about it or whatever it is is that promotional for them or is it journalistic for me? Um, and I still do consider myself a, a part-time journalist in addition to a TV writer. Um, I think it's finding ways to shine the light on the things that you yourself find important without contradicting any given rules by any given union you happen to belong to. Um, and so I think it's actually kind of great to shine a light on people who never get the light shined on them. Um, I think telling some of those stories um, is always an important thing. And so if, I mean, if I'm in your shoes, I keep doing it. Um, I don't know if I go to the junket and drink their soda and eat their food and live on the largesse of, of a studio. But like, if you'll give me the Zoom of the costume designer for the great, I'll talk to the costume designer for the great because those costumes are great. <laughs> so if there's the sound editor for foundation, let's talk to that guy because that sound design is bananas. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that there is there is a way to use these platforms to both advance the art of of TV and movies um, and give a little bit of of spotlight onto people who never get a spotlight while still being respectful of the actions that the Screen Actors Guild and the WGA are taking. That's great. Well, thanks for helping us with that that quandary that we've been discussing for this last week here. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, before we leave, I do want to mention that you also have directed your own film now, uh, a short film called Splinter, and that I believe, unless plans have changed, you're off to San Diego Comic-Con uh, this week to discuss it potentially. Are you still doing your panel at Comic-Con? Is that the plan? I am. I am indeed. You know, it, it, it was a touch and go there for a little bit. Um, because the the guidance from the Screen Actors Guild as to what actors could do and promote and what they could could sort of represent was shifting over those first couple of days. First, it was, you can't go to Comic-Con at all. Then it was, you can go to Comic-Con, but don't go to any panels. Then it was, don't do any panels from any struck companies and don't take any money to be like... But ultimately, it was, we made a short film that doesn't belong to anybody but us. Um, we didn't take any money 
from anybody who was representing one of these truck companies. Um, we don't have distribution. We are doing the film festival circuit and Comic-Con, you know, technically has a film festival, but even still, we are, we are not in any way taking money from anybody. Um, we are, we are a hundred percent independent and independent exists as a vessel for making art. And none of these guilds in any particular version of these actions want to stop people from uh, evangelizing for their own art. And so we'll still have a panel. We'll still have a couple of actors. We'll have some more crafts people. My production designer, my stunt coordinator is going to be on there. And we'll just talk for an hour. You know, we'll screen the film and we'll talk about it. And and hopefully people can get um, some insight into the craft and the, and the work of making a kind of short film like this. And then we'll talk about the strikes, if anybody's curious, and how that is affecting you know, both promotion and the festival circuit on this, any other short films we want to make in the future, like, can we make them now? Like, what's, what does the landscape feel like? But Comic-Con is a home away from home for me. You know, it is, it's nerd prom. And so um, <laughs> to get to go to nerd prom um, with the new bell of the ball by my side is, uh, is always a treat. That's fantastic. I'm so, uh, I, I, I need to make it out to San Diego. I've gone to so many different cons, but never to that one. And, um, but I, I, you know, I've been following Splinter for, you know, sort of since its inception, uh, when you started to write it and through the Kickstarter campaign and everything else. And so it's great to be able to know that it exists in the world. Um, and I'm hoping that it gets a distributor at some point so I can see it. You know, uh, but what is it that people can do as far as uh, supporting that type of independent work or any of your other works that you're doing now? If you could just sort of remind people where they can sort of track all that down or find it and be able to support not even just necessarily you, but also other writers and independent artists as well. Um, well, to find me is relatively easy. Uh, Instagram is kind of the only place that I'm really setting up shop because of all of the reasons and. I'm a little too old to adopt 19 new versions of social media this week when another 19 are coming next week. But uh, but yeah, Instagram is sort of the, the one-stop shop for all things relating to me. You know, and as for finding other independent artists to support, you know, I think Kickstarter itself has a pretty robust sort of um, kind of algorithmic method of shunting you to the things that you might like to support be they, you know, short films or feature films or comic books or role-playing games or whatever it is. Um, there are a bunch of people out there who just want to be making stuff. And if, you, if you're if you lucky enough to have a convention near you like Comic-Con or a local convention or whatever, walk the aisles. There are artists there selling their wares, you know, and, and all kinds of stuff, comic books and games and merchandise and jewelry and, and, and apparel and everything made by people who love this stuff. Um, who can hopefully just sell a couple of things to pay for dinner that night and make enough money to have afforded their hotel room. Um, but the, this is a business. This is an industry, especially the nerd part of it, that is fueled entirely by passion. People do it because they believe in it. You know, they do it because they love it. And if they can find a way to make a buck doing that, great. They'll still do it anyway. And so if you're looking to be a patron of the arts, specifically the nerd arts, go to a convention and buy some stuff. You know, talk to the person who made that stuff, you know, hear a story. Um, it is it is a thing that I I don't even have to remind myself to do because I'm always drawn to it. Every convention, just like walk through Artist Alley and, you know, avail yourself <laughs> of the, the bounty of and some of it is bananas and some of it is a little screws and some of it is not your jam, but all of it is made with love. And so reward love with love. 
That is fantastic. Thank you so much today for your time, Mark. And just thank you for the art and creativity that you put into the world because it really helps enrich all of us. So we are so grateful to you. So thanks. Thank you very much. This was this was a hoot. Again, it's great to get a chance to talk to Mark. And I was so grateful that I was able to have that opportunity. Thank you so much to Mark for his insights and to sort of even allow me some space to kind of figure out what we can continue to do to support this strike, um, but also to make sure that we are not sort of crossing that virtual picket line. And uh, and I think it's those are those are tough areas to negotiate, and I'm glad that he was willing to do that too. And I'm just grateful for the content that he produces. I can't tell you enough to go out there and read some Mark Bernardin this week. He is fantastic. You will not be disappointed. And I'm glad that you stuck it out and listened to this interview about the WGA strike, but then also, of course, the actors having just joined the writers this past week as well uh, on the picket lines. We will get back to some regular content here in the relatively near future. I do promise that we are still bringing PBB shrinks and we're going to be doing our analysis on shrinking as well. And so you'll be hearing me and Jeremy in the relatively near future. But I wanted to get this out to you as soon as I can because I know it is in the press now and people might be thinking about uh, their thoughts on everything or maybe getting some more information and gathering some information before you can make a, a rational thought on what's going on over in Hollywood too. So that's all I've got for this week. Continue to uh, follow us on social media, PBBFRN on Twitter, but also join that Facebook page. It's got over 2000 members. They're the greatest people on planet earth. And so go check that out, peanut butter and biscuits. And I guess I'll sign off now for peanut butter and biscuits. I am Craig. And as always, be a goldfish. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Front Row Network, a proud Community Voices member of National Public Radio Illinois. For more from the Front Row Network, including our articles or our other dozens of shows, visit thefrontrownetwork.com or nprillinois.org slash programs slash network. You can also find us on social media by searching for the Front Row Network on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Front Row Reviews with a Z.